0: Um, I'm Peter McCulloch and I'm a lay canon here at St. Paul's Cathedral and it is my distinct uh, honour and pleasure, a privilege indeed, on behalf of the Dean and Chapter and of the organiser of these events, Elizabeth Foy, to welcome you to this session of St. Paul's Forum and to introduce today's speaker. Now for me, serving as a lay canon here at St. Paul's has an untold number of privileges and honours. But none has meant more to me over the last two and a half years than my friendship with today's speaker. Mark Oakley is at present our Canon Chancellor here at St. Paul's. He has had a distinguished career in the Church of England, uh, the extent of which uh, is hardly measurable against his evident youth. Um, (coughs) He he began um, his ordained ministry as an Episcopal chaplain, uh, served in two parishes as priest in the west end of London. Um, His talents then took him across the North Sea to serve as an archdeacon in Northern Europe, um, and then returning to St. Paul's first as Canon Treasurer, and since January as our Canon Chancellor. Mark is undoubtedly one of the finest preachers in the Church of England of our age. He is also a priest who commands an amazing gift for the written as well as the spoken word, Um, and that is known and loved in no better form than in his modern spiritual classic, The Collage of God, which appeared in 2001. Uh, That book uh, has given Mark that most coveted of uh, writerly accolades, a second edition with a new (laughs) preface, (laughs) which we celebrate today um, as Mark comes to speak to us for about 30 to 40 minutes about The Collage of God, after which I will invite your questions to initiate about 20 minutes of discussion. So we welcome Canon Mark Oakley.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you very much, uh, Peter, and and all of you for being here. I've tried to do something very unusual for me. I'm very much a script person. I very much follow... Uh, a script that I always prepare in advance and it's every word is there and today I've I haven't done that at all Um, In fact, I haven't got any script. I've got five headings down here and I don't know who to feel more sorry for you or me (laughs) Um, But there's a reason for that. It wasn't laziness um, partly, but uh, it wasn't laziness. I wanted to see what came out really um, because it's moderately safe space and um, Let's just see what happens and I want to tell you how this book came about, and um, why I wrote it, what I hope to say in it, and what I think of it uh, twelve years later. Um, and then we 'll see what, what you make of it. I am an only child. I was brought up by my grandparents uh, in the middle of Shropshire, and uh, Shropshire is pretty bleak in places, a lot of sheep and not much else in the countryside. And uh, I was very much a solitary uh, boy um, with this strange situation of being brought up by my grandparents. So very much a loner and I think very much a reflector. I had to make my own company. And one day I walked uh, down a, a country lane to a little village called Sandbrook. And I walked into the church, uh, which I'd never been into before. And my family are not at all uh, church uh, types and churchgoers. And it, was, it must have been a Wednesday or a Thursday morning, and there was a, a midweek uh, Holy Communion service. And this man came out. in I, I can see him now in these very startling green robes. And I thought, wow. and he walked out and I, I could see his hands and he, he bowed and I, I could see little glimpses of black and white and, and I thought I want to do that <laughs> and um, well I've never looked back really uh, that, that was the beginning of it people often say did you, you know, feel God speak to you in prayer did you? and I thought no I just saw this man in robes and thought I want to do that <laughs> Uh and I got to know that, uh, that vicar, he, he died not long ago actually, and um, uh, we had the most beautiful phone conversation uh, one morning on my, my way here, and uh, he sort of was saying goodbye. And uh, we got to know one another, and he prepared me for confirmation, and I got confirmed, and this was the beginning of my romance with God, and my romance with the church, I think. And uh, I used to, in my little room, uh, light a couple of candles and I would record hymns from Radio 4 and I would play them in my little room with these flickering candles and I would put on a little sort of sheet and look like the vicar. (laughs) And uh, again, nothing's really changed uh, 20 odd years later, but uh, 30 years later... But that's how it started and then i went to uh, school and i wanted to pursue the ideas behind the faith more and more and i had wonderful teachers who taught me gcse and then a level uh, divinity as it was called and then i went to king's college uh, london to read theology and had some marvelous teachers but things started to happen when you read theology for three years Uh, with some of the best minds in in the country uh, questions uh, start to come your way and unless you've got mega resources of mind and talent which I don't uh, conflicts begin to to take place and all those things that you've invested in in the romance uh, all those things start to get thrown up in the air and uh, all the things that you cherish and have feel most important to you get questioned and you suddenly meet people who think that you're a complete nutter for believing it and will tell you in the seminar room or wherever. So I had my first um, sort of hit against my thinking and I was very attracted to what's called systematic theology. I even won the prize for the systematic theology at King's But what was happening was the system didn't make sense to me anymore, and I kept quiet about a lot of it, I think, and I got shingles, for instance, and my body started to tell me that I wasn't making the connections between uh, what I was doing on a Sunday morning when I went to worship and what I was doing the rest of the week in the classroom, and I couldn't connect, but I kept quiet about it. But I was drawn to people who were asking the questions. I knew that. I liked the questions. Uh, but I didn't quite know how to fit them into my, my devotion. So uh, thinking critically, but how was I now going to live faithfully? That's, that's where I was. I went, however, with all this sort of bubbling underneath, I went to uh, a selection conference, and I was selected. I was very young, actually. I wasn't told to go and work in a sausage factory or whatever to get some experience. Uh, They said, no, no, off you go, you're you're okay. And so I went, and I went to Theological College in Oxford, and um, it was there that they sent me on a placement. And and if you've read the collage... Of God, this is the placement that I talk about. I was sent to go and work as a hospital chaplain for the summer holiday at St. Mary's Paddington. And uh, you have to take yourself back a bit here. This was uh, 20 odd years ago, where St. Mary's Paddington was the leading hospital for those who were living with HIV AIDS. And um, the chaplain, who was a a marvellous man, could see, I think, that, um, that I, I had to use my time there well. And he said, I want you to be the, basically the chaplain for the summer on the HIV wards. And what happened there was that I met people of my own age um, uh, dying, which I'd never done before, and dying pretty painfully, and a lot of distressed parents as well, and brothers and sisters, all these people dying far too early and uh here was the second hit i'd got the the mental agility was sort of being exercised could i connect could i connect with my thoughts and questions but here was experience and uh, it was too painful and i thought well sod god frankly i don't believe him if this is if this is what it's about i'm off and uh little bit sort of simplistic how it worked but that's what I thought at the end of it I thought it was a great time and I'd learnt a lot but actually where was God so I went and I saw my theological uh, college principal and I said "Uh, it's been lovely but goodbye Uh, I'm off and uh, he said okay fine and I went off to uh, stay with a friend who was training to be a doctor in India and uh, I spent six weeks traveling around India and that was where I had the space to start trying to sift uh, all the questions and the hurt and the bewilderment the riddles of all this and India a great place to do it because a it doesn't feel like anywhere I'd ever been before And, you know, I would sit on buses with chickens on my lap and spices, and it just was a completely different place. I was a stranger in every possible way. Uh, And yet, of course, it's so rich and beautiful and varied and um, magical. And I suddenly realised, hmm, how can I pretend... That I would ever begin to understand God's mind when I'm only just beginning to understand a bit about my own mind. And perhaps God's just pretty big. <laughs> and perhaps the church hasn't got a monopoly on truth. And uh, I know this all sounds so obvious and so simplistic, but you know, when you go through it for the first time, it's all very real and painful. And and I really felt the contours in me were being pushed. And I went very sheepishly back to my theological college principal, knocked on his door, and I said, Hello, (laughs) (laughs) remember me? And uh, he said, he was very, very generous, and he said, Tell me what's happened, and I did. And he said, Well, there's room in this ark for you if you want to come in. And uh, so I started again. But something had changed in me. There's no doubt about that at all. And I came across a poem uh, at that time by a Norwegian called Olaf Hauger. And um, as soon as I read it, I wrote it down. And I, I keep little commonplace books like that one there. Um, I don't know why I brought that in. I think it's security. It's like my teddy bear. Um, I, won't, I won't actually read anything from it. It's, I just feel better because it's there. Um, and uh, this poem by Hauger really sort of said, said to me where I was at this point in my life and I've brought it with me he just wrote and I won't do it in Norwegian because I can't but the translation is don't give me the whole truth don't give me the sea for my thirst don't give the sky when I ask for light but give me a glint a dewy wisp a moat like the birds bear water drops from their bathing and the wind a grain of sand With those slightly lower expectations, um, I went back to Theological College and was very fortunate to finish my training and I ended up working in St John's Wood uh, as a curate there, working for a fantastic priest. And it was during my time at St John's Wood that I felt I had to start explaining to some friends just what I was doing. Being ordained, I was ordained here in St Paul's, um, and I would shared, of course, a lot of this trouble, this tempest uh, of soul. Uh, was he going to be ordained? Wasn't he going to be? Does he believe in God? Doesn't and all that? And I felt I really have to put some of this down to to help people understand where I am because they've spent a lot of their time and energy listening to me go on and on. I owe it to them, and so I started to to jot a few things down on pages of a4 which I photocopied uh, and I sent out to them and that was how the collage of God started um, and a couple of them said you ought to you ought to send this to more people you ought to approach a publisher and so on and, and that's how it, it took off when I started to sit down and think well what What do I want to say? I suppose I I wanted to say that the systems which I had placed so much confidence in, uh, for me didn't add up anymore. That I don't think you can be systematic about God. So what am I being then? And the only model that that struck me, and still does actually, I'm still quite proud of of the title of the book, although I change a lot in it now, um, the idea that instead of a system, like a sort of jigsaw that you can put together about God and the world and you and how everything nicely fits together. My experience is that that ain't so. But a collage where you slowly, over time, piece together fragments and pieces, uh, things people have said, things you've read, things you've loved, things you've lost, the darkness, uh, the light, you piece them slowly together They don't fit very well all the time, but sometimes you can step back and you can see an integrity to it. Uh, You can't explain it to everybody. It's it's your collage, although you can share a lot of things about it. But that's how I now see my faith, is that it's this collage. And because it's a collage, there's no closure, there's no rounding off, there's no full stop the collage is actually never completed. So for me, it's an open-ended way of of thinking about faith. So I sat down and I tried to to think about this collage, and I came across a a quotation by um, Erica Wagner from The Times, and she, she wrote, We are made like quilts, over time and with many hands, drawn together into what we are, and not knowing which stitch it is that makes us whole, which stitch, if removed, would unravel the entire fabric. So I thought to myself, well, what are the main, if you like, materials that I would want on my collage? And I thought that they were hiddenness, this, this God who hides, this God who disappears, um, who causes a lot of pain by disappearing. Um, But then there's the discovery. There are those epiphany moments in life. The click times where you think, ah. The moments where you don't quite believe your unbelief. What do I do about those? So there's the hiddenness, there's the discovery, and then there's poetry. And for me, this was a very key part of the collage, because poetry for me is the language of faith. Let me just tell you then a little bit about those three areas. Hiddenness. Uh, I came across a quotation by the um, medieval mystic uh, Eckhart who said God really is just like a person who's hiding in the dark and occasionally he coughs and gives himself away (laughs) and um, I feel as if I'm you know in a the romance has gone by the way I I feel I'm in a relationship now with God Uh, the honeymoon's over um, and sometimes we just have to sit together, uh, because that's all we can really do, Um, but he coughs occasionally, (laughs) and I know he's still there, but a lot of the time, hmm, it's pretty silent, but this is a relationship, and the hiddenness for me is painful, there are times where it's almost overbearing, and what happens then is I switch very quickly from being a person of reverence to being quite a person of rebellion. And I can really sometimes think, let's say at Matins, never at St Paul's Cathedral, of course, but what am I doing here? I mean, it's that sort of rebellion. I want out. This is stifling. I can't breathe. Help! And then there's the rebellion that comes in me. But there's also a reverence as well. I can, I can be at Matins and be totally overwhelmed by the beauty of the silence. It's almost sometimes when I'm upstairs... It's so quiet in the morning. It's almost as if I'm trying to hear what God is thinking. Um, So reverence and rebellion, devotion and dereliction is the other way of putting it, I suppose. Times where you feel pretty derelict, but also drawn to devotion. And I've gone in and out of that, and I think I've now just trying to come to terms with it. That's how it's always going to be. I don't think I'll ever come down on one or the other. I think it's just gonna be like that. And I better get used to it. Um, The uh, other thing about discovery for me is that it's it's this ongoingness, this I've I've used it in a sermon here. For me faith is is about the the painful process sometimes of changing a hard full stop in your life into a comma. We've all got hard little full stops. And they're they're comforting sometimes, your full stops, because you think, ah, finished, done. Actually, if you read the Gospels, it seems to me that Jesus was always seeing people's full stops and saying, hmm, can we change that? Can we make it a comma? Because there's more to come yet, there's more to do more to learn and therefore the answers are not always what I want, it's the questions and the promptings and the pushings and so the discovery for me is not always, ah, here's the truth, thank you very much, it's more about here's a question, uh, what you're going to do with it. And I was telling Elizabeth Foy the other day um, about a a wonderful Hasidic story I came across uh, last week. And uh, in this Hasidic story, there's a man who's tortured by doubt, and he travels a great distance, hoping to ask um, a famous teacher his question, his one question. And at first, the teacher's disciples won't allow this man to get anywhere uh, near to the great rabbi. Uh, uh, But the man is persistent, so he slips in, he gets through a window and he sees the rabbi and he goes up to him and he says, venerable rabbi, forgive me, forgive me for disturbing you, uh, but I've travelled many weeks and uh, over many days for the chance to ask you a question that's troubled me all my adult life. And the rabbi says, what, what is your question? And the, the man says, what is the essence of truth? And the rabbi looks at him for a moment, and he gets off his chair and he slaps the man on the cheek. And then he goes back to his chair and picks up his book and ignores him. Well, pretty shocked and uh, hacked off, uh, the man thinks, well, that's charming. Uh, And he, he goes out the rabbi's house and he goes across the road to the pub. And he complains to everybody there about his mistreatment. And one of the rabbi's disciples is in there, and he overhears him, and he takes pity on him, and he says, let me just tell you, the rabbi's slap was given you as a great act of kindness to teach you this. Never, ever, ever surrender a good question for a mere answer. (laughs) that's the sort of discovery I think I'm talking about <clears throat> finally poetry um, If I, I'm writing a sort of follow up at the moment to the Collage of God which hopefully will be out later this year which is about believing in poetry because that's become the, the biggest piece of the collage for me as the years have gone on for me a, a good poem is, is like throwing a, a stone into a pond and uh, there's a sort of splash of words uh, and then the ripples of meaning set out and they're they're heading towards your shore over time and uh, you gently bob with with these ripples of meaning and poetry for me is the way in which faith tries to express itself the problem is we have so much poetry and I believe every person of faith really is a poet in residence but the problem is we're made to think uh, literalistically. So we have um, problems. We hear poetry and we feel guilty because we can't believe it literally. But if I said to you now, "Here is the news," you'd all start listening in a, in a particular way. You'd sit up on the news. But if I said to you, "Once upon a time... you'd you'd start listening differently. There are different ways that human beings can tune in to truth. And I just now believe that the truths of faith are so important, you can't be literalistic about them. You have to be poetic. And to go upstairs, like we did this morning, all that's going on there is poetry in motion. All the time, everything is poetry in motion. But I bet that so many people are sitting there with their literalistic minds. And struggling with it. And for me, therefore, I think everything uh, that I do and preach and say ought to be trying to relax people into the poetry of Christian living. We can talk more about that if if you want to. Then, if those are the three big materials on my collage, I try to think about what are the things that come into play as I compose this? How how do these materials take shape? And for me, they were truthfulness. And I I sometimes say that clergy particularly are... um, They love talking about truth, preaching about truth. They're not very good at honesty. Um, And one of the things I'd learned is that if you learn... and, And this is from a Danish theologian called Holberg... He said, if you learn theology before you learn how to be a human being, you'll probably never learn how to be a human being. You've got to learn to be honest. And if that means standing up in front of a few people and saying, yes, I'm a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, but there are days where I don't know if I believe it, I'm going to say it, because that's how it is. And there are days where... uh, I stand there at the altar and I open my arms in a vocative gesture to heaven and I've never felt more that I'm in the right place. Uh, There's both. So to be honest, to try and ask people to be honest is for me essential. And yet my experience is that so much of religion and its compromises and its cautions and its political Um, machinations work against that and so if I go to a clergy gathering ooh the Bishop of London puts it beautifully, he says yes but in a Congress of masseurs no one ever wants to turn their back (laughs) Um, but I think I think quite often we're sitting there thinking that everybody else is doing it better uh, the clergy all think secretly the more people going to so-and-so's church. Uh, quite often people think that they're, you know, they're probably better believing. They don't have so many questions and doubts and so on. Uh, and it's rather difficult to talk about it, so we don't. I mean, instead, we just talk about how you're going to vote at the next synod on, you know, the length of phylacteries and fringes. <laughs> Much easier to do that. But... Each time you do that, you're taking a step away from the heart of what we're trying to talk about, which is the heartland of being alive and the spiritual adventure of being a human being. Um, So truthfulness, praying. Um, I don't know what praying is. I just sense it's important. (laughs) Um, I don't know what's going on. I just know that... Uh, The images that Rowan Williams has put our way of trying to sit in the sunlight, where you, like a plant, you sort of slowly turn towards the the warmth. Um, The image of Saint Kevin, you know, the Irish saint who was praying with his arms, his hands open, and it said he prayed like that for so long that a blackbird came and nested. And, and laid its eggs in his hands, that idea that there's something nurturing and, 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 and creative about this relationship we call prayer these images for me are important because they resonate somewhere but I can't quite make sense of what I'm doing logically and that's okay that's okay um, we keep doing it because it makes sense it's all the most important things in life are ritualised. If you love somebody, you kiss them. If you think they're great, you shake their hand. Uh, with God, you pray. And um, that's important. Um, and then there's the uh, other uh, way of the, the sort of part of the composition is service. This idea that you know, the human self actually isn't most itself when it's being selfish... And that somehow, not only do we have to pray, but we have to sort of practice what we pray for. We have to become part of the answer. We have to try and serve people, not their wants. You know, we're not sort of um, doormats, Christian doormats, just for everybody to walk over. We're not there to serve people's wants, but we are there to try and serve their need uh, in each other. And... Um, I use the story, and I think, Peter, you watched this the other day, Babette's Feast, the beautiful film that was made out of the Danish story. Uh, The idea of Babette being very much the Christ figure who prepares this wonderful banquet where everybody, uh, all their protective layers, drop away in order to share this meal that she prepares out of her own uh, funds. And she spends it all, and she has nothing left at the end, but she's completed her art and love. Very much for me, a Christ figure. Um, I, I look at the idea of service through the Babette story, and then finally, um, I talked about laughing because um, I, I do believe one of the um, one of the great Anglican contributions to uh, Christianity is um, irony, and uh, there's a lot of irony in Anglican vestries and uh, this is good this is good this means that you you prick a few balloons, um, it's very easy to get folly de grandeur, uh, particularly when you've got lots of grand diamante numbers to put on and waltz around in, but actually at the end of the day we're all um, in a very similar place, we, we don't know as much as we like to think and we're all pretty fragile and funny and strange. And I love the image of the church being some sort of, you know, Noah's Ark, where every strange, weird, wonderful animal has to budge over and find a bit of straw for another one. Um, and laughter for me is, is not, uh, it's not cruel laughter. It's not a negative laughter. For me, laughter is, is a recognition of joy and a recognition of truth. And therefore, we ought to be laughing quite a lot. Uh, And I love the idea that in the medieval church on Easter Day, the priest in Rhesus Pascalis tried to get the congregation to laugh because it was the only real way to celebrate the resurrection. And, of course, because they didn't know if they were allowed to, um, he he would tell them almost carry-on jokes, pretty coarse, you know, as Kenneth Williams in the... you know, uh, To get them going, to get them going, because that was how you were going to celebrate the resurrection. And it was just as I was thinking about this that I actually discovered a line in the Quran that he deserves paradise who makes his companions laugh. And there's a lovely uh, line also in John Berger who wrote a, a little treatise on um, theology and laughter, believe it or not. Not much laughter in the theology I did, but um, <laughs> he, he says for him... Laughter is a promise of redemption and faith is the intuition that the promise is going to be kept. I love that. Laughter is the promise of redemption and faith is the intuition that that promise will be kept. John Berger. So... Um, Yeah, I'm afraid, for me, I've decided... And actually, there was a tutor at college who said to me, Oakley, he said, there are two Oakleys. The one is very serious. He's that boy again, walking around Shropshire Fields, trying to make sense of all this. Pretty intense, serious. He said, but there's another one, and it's pretty outrageous and raucous and laughs very loudly and is naughty And he said, and there's hardly anything in between. (laughs) I think he's right, actually. So um, I think I've spoken for 30 minutes and I better give way. But um, for me, this collage isn't neat. I can't pretend it's neat. It can be very frustrating. uh, But I believe that it's given to us like that slap in great kindness so that we continue to grow. And silence is not always painful, but it is very disclosing. And uh, the silence of God, for me, is not just absence, but actually uh, growth. The collage, for me, is, as I say, no full stops. There's always another piece to add. And it's never complete. And so, 12 years on, I slightly blush at this because I think, "Mm, I wouldn't say that now and I wouldn't put things like that anymore. But the title, the title for me is still important. And uh, I've been very grateful for you listening to me today about how it came about. Thank you.